just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by Daniel Markovitz, who is the Guido Calabresi, if I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Professor of Law at Yale Law School, which is a position in an organisation that is so elite that it makes our own Supreme Court look like bumbling amateurs. And yet, he's just written a book called The Meritocracy Trap, which says that meritocracy is not a good thing. Daniel, how come? How can meritocracy be anything other than a good thing? First of all, thanks very much for being here. And um, second, the question is completely natural because in a way meritocracy has become our age's literal common sense. We disagree about almost everything, but we seem to agree that it's right that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments, not on their parents' social class, not on their race, not on their gender, and so on. And we think that because it seems, on the one hand, to promote those who have the most capacity, so it's efficient, and also it gives everybody a fair shot at success. But what's happened, in fact, is that this force, which was introduced as a leveling force, has become the principal driver of inequality. And it's become really what it was designed to defeat. It's a new kind of aristocracy, only now it's based on schooling rather than breeding. Yeah. And... What was it that sort of set you on the path to writing this book? Because there is a sort of light bulb moment that you describe early on. Well, there is. You know, there are two light bulb moments. One light bulb moment is um, I had a, a small academic dispute with a philosopher named Elizabeth Anderson, whom some of your readers may know. She just won a MacArthur, in which I was working in a very traditional academic line on inequality. And she had written some papers saying that this line was balderdash. And I thought I was right and she was wrong. And then over the course of the next few years, I concluded that she was right and I was wrong and that the kind of inequality that I was working on, which was very much focused on the idea of meritocracy as being a good thing, in fact, picked out exactly what had gone wrong with our society. So that was light bulb moment number one. Light bulb moment number two was a few years ago, I was asked to give the commencement address at Yale Law School. And I had thought that I would talk to my students about the responsibilities of privilege and the need for them to do things that were socially valuable rather than just that made them rich. And then when I started talking to them individually in advance of writing this thing, it became clear that they were also suffering on account of meritocracy and that while it seemed that they were the big winners, they were in a way, in an important way, also losers. And it became interesting to investigate how that was working. Well, this is one of the the very strangest sort of aspects of your book is that, you know, as you say, it's a big driver of inequality. And when, but, you know, it's not working for the people who are winning. I mean, that's the real surprise. It's like everybody has a shit time under yeah. aristocracy in your account of it. So how does it survive? Is this false consciousness, so-called? Well, first of all, it's worth just pointing out exactly why I think everybody has a shit time. So those who are excluded have a terrible time because the meritocratic competition is one that you can win only if your parents invest enormous amounts in your education. And so if you're a middle-income child, you won't get the private schools that you need to do really well, and you won't get into the universities that you need. And then meritocracy will say that the reason why you're not in the elite is that you're no good, 
So it will characterize what's a structural exclusion as a failure to measure up, and that's profoundly insulting. For the rich, meritocracy has changed the bases of their income. If you're an aristocrat, if you inherit an estate, or if you inherit a factory, your wealth makes you free because you can own it passively, you can mix it with other people's labor, you can exploit your workers and get great income without having to do anything you don't want to do. But if you're a meritocrat and all of your wealth is held in the form of your own human training, your human capital, your skills, the only way to get income out of that is to mix it with your own labor. And so you have to work hard, in fact, almost all the time in order to make your wealth work for you. And you have to work at whatever jobs the market tells you are high paying. So your labor is both grindingly intense and alienated because you can't pick what you work on. You work on what your bank or what your law firm or what your consultancy or what your firm tells you you have to work on. And that's a form of exploited and alienated labor. Now you get rich because you're exploiting yourself. So unlike the traditional Marxist analysis of alienated labor where somebody else gets rich, in this case, the alienated worker gets rich. But you can be wealthy but not well, and that's what I saw was happening in my students. Yeah, I mean, this... Yeah, the, the sort of background for this is the you know the changing demographics you know the social and economic demographics of the United States you know this runaway difference between the one percent this you know rise in inequality that we've all seen now I mean in a recent book you know Joe Stiglitz who we had on the podcast not long ago addressed very much what he's I think the same thing his book um, I think People Power and Profits mm-hmm. but he said which sort of chimes with Thomas Piketty, you know, this is mostly rent-seeking behaviour. This is why it's all changed, is that the returns to capital are too great. And you're going against that, aren't you? And you say this is only a small part of the story. Yeah, I think there are two disputes that I have with that line. And I want to emphasize, the dispute I have is not that that line makes it up. There is rent-seeking, and capital is taking income away from labour. The question is, as you say, what's the balance of effects? And on the one hand, on the capital versus labor side, if you look at the data, including at Piketty's data, even by Piketty's estimation, even today, roughly half of the top 1% income comes from labor, not capital. And there are technical reasons to suspect that Piketty underestimates that share. Part of it has to do with attributing income to the proprietors of businesses that they own and work for. Piketty under-attributes labor income to that. There's some new work by economists, including uh, Danny Yagan and a man named Zwick, about that. Part of it also is that a lot of income that looks like capital income is actually labor income, carried interest of hedge fund managers. That's labor income. It's taxed as capital income. Piketty counts as a capital income. But the hedge fund manager brings only her labor to her job. And so she's paid for her work. So there's that set of technical issues about how you allocate income between capital and labor. And I think for the top 1%, probably three quarters of their income comes from labor. Piketty thinks it's half. The difference is material, but it's not the whole game. The other question concerns rent-seeking. Rent-seeking is real. And the rich, especially in finance, especially in management, get income that in a technical economic sense they don't deserve because they're not providing value for it. But rent-seeking, again, is limited. The best work on finance by economists Thomas Philippon and Ariel Reshef suggests that rents account for only about 20% of the explosion of top finance incomes. If you look at elite managers, here's a striking fact. 
when a private equity fund takes a company private, so it takes it out of the public markets, the CEO does not generally get paid less. They get paid the same amount. Why is that important? Well, the rent-seeking story about executive pay says that executives control the compensation committees that set their wages, and that because the shareholders are so dispersed, they can't supervise the executive pay. But a private equity firm is one owner. In my experience, venture capitalists and private equity people are not altruists. They pay no more than they think the manager is worth. And the fact that they're paying the manager the same amount, again, suggests that the manager, in fact, is mostly not getting rents, but mostly getting pay for value rendered. And we can talk about, if you're interested, why I think the economy has transformed to make the value so high. But that's, a, that's another part of the argument. Well, actually, I did want to ask a bit, you know, because you, you, you go back historically. Yeah. You don't just say, you know, here's where we are now. You say, let's look back. I mean, you, you go back as far as Thorstein Vlöblen and the leisure class and that, you know, early idea of how arist- aristocracies and leisure classes work. And then there's this moment, I mean, you describe it in the elite institutions where it's no longer just, you know, your alumnus with, you know, a child who's so thick they can't write their own name. Nevertheless, they're going to be a Yale guy because right. that changes. But, you know, what are the transformations that suddenly bring about this situation where the super, rich, right. you know, as you put it very kind of eloquently in the book, you know, how hard you work used to be a sign the harder you work, the poorer you were, and now it's the other way around. Right. So, I mean, there are two transformations. One is in schools, which you've gestured at, that the schools started promoting people who were hardworking, capable of learning, and actually learned a lot. But the other is in the workforce. So think about a typical large firm. 50, 60, 70 years ago, that firm would have been run by a comfortably lazy chief executive who had no instinct to work, who took long lunches, and had no real skills, got there largely on the basis of background. The firm could be run nevertheless because there would be an army of middle managers, an elaborate ladder of hierarchy within the firm, and the middle managers would run the firm almost without much supervision or direction from the head. And even production workers, who would be unionized and who would have lifetime employment, would in a way be the lowest level managers for the firm. Because if you have lifetime employment, you're charged with managing yourself for the benefit of the firm over the course of your career with workplace training, skill development. So that meant that the management function was dispersed all across the firm's workers. What happened, especially in the United States, but also to some degree in the United Kingdom, is that beginning in the 1980s, all the middle managers were stripped out of firms. Workers were deunionized. Often workers were no longer made lifetime employees. They were hired for particular tasks. And the entire management function was concentrated in a narrow elite of executives. Now, those executives, in order to perform that function, had to be incredibly hardworking, incredibly well-trained, and incredibly skilled. But in the new structure of the firm, their skills became really valuable. So in a way, both the economic function of management and the income returns to management used to be spread across a large workforce, and now they're concentrated in a very small workforce, and the small workforce gets very rich, and everybody else gets much less rich. And that's the kind of story that I think has happened all across the economy, that there's been this convergence, this feedback loop between concentrating education in an elite and then also concentrating production in the elite. And so the two fit together, and that's why I think rents are not the main story. The main story is that we've remade the economy, to favor precisely the skills that now elite workers have. 
And this shift in the economy, a lot of it seems to follow that, you know, everything that's solid melts into air. It's an increasing abstraction, isn't it? That financial instruments become more complex and abstract and more mathematical, that, you know, actual labour ceases to involve, you know, physical stuff. I yeah. mean, that can't all surely be blamed on on meritocracy. I mean, some of that's just, isn't it, just a, just a process of the changes in technology. Technology, yeah. yeah. Look, so the, I think there, there are two points there. One is it really is increasing abstraction, but it's also an increasing concretization for some people. So if you think of an Amazon warehouse worker, you know, Amazon now has a patent on a wristband that measures where you are to within, I don't know, 50 centimeters that gives you haptic feedback if you move in the wrong way. So that if you scratch your head too much, Amazon knows. And that wristband makes it possible to transform a warehouse worker into a robot where somebody abstract designs the motions that the worker should take. And then the worker merely implements somebody else's plan. And when you have that form of production, the person who can design the motions and design the wristband becomes incredibly productive and incredibly rich. But anybody can do the work. And so that worker gets paid almost nothing. So there's the abstraction at the top. And then there's the sort of physical concretization, the reduction to a, a, a mechanism at the bottom. Is it inevitable that technology does that? I actually don't think so. One of the arguments in the book is an argument in sort of the sociology of science, which says that the direction that technology takes is not driven by the inner logic of technology. It's driven by the social circumstances in which the technology exists. So very concretely, if you are an agrarian society and you live in a desert, you invent drip irrigation. If you're an agrarian society and you live in a floodplain, you invent paddy field farming. So the technology you invent depends on the resources you have. Well, the biggest resource our society has is the skills of free labor. So the technology that we invent will depend on how we train our people. And what that means is that when we concentrate education in a narrow elite and create social norms which make that narrow elite willing to work incredibly hard, we then invent the technologies you describe which makes it possible for that elite to be so productive. If we didn't have that elite, we wouldn't have those technologies. Will you also talk about, you know, which is a sort of slightly terrifying section, about the snowballing? Yeah. The idea that a meritocratic elite, whether consciously or not, continues to shape the economy in a way that makes it more um, hospitable to a meritocratic elite. Yeah. You know, that this kind of digs in and right. embeds and compounds. Right. Can you talk a bit about how that works? Sure. So, you know, the first generation of the meritocrats actually breaks the old aristocracy because the old aristocrats didn't have the capacity or interest in training their children. And so when you start making education, especially at elite universities, depend on accomplishment, the old elite gets kicked aside and you get a new elite. Well, the new elite does two things. First of all, it has skills that draw new technologies to it that make its skills very valuable. That happened in finance very dramatically in the United States between 1975 and, say, 1985. Then, once it starts having children, unlike the old aristocrats, the meritocrats know how to train. That they know better than anything else. And they have an almost insatiable taste for training. So they start training their children like crazy. And the children then get, in a way, even more super educated than their parents were. I think it's a common thing. I don't know if this is true in Britain. When I talk to all my compatriots, we all say, you know, many of us went to Ivy League universities. We say we'd never get in today because the competition has gotten so much more intense. 
because our children are trained in a way in which we weren't trained. Yeah, there's actually, sorry, just one detail from the book that's extraordinary. Turtleneck syndrome. Yes. You describe. Yes, in in Seoul, which is the the syndrome that doctors in Seoul have described for the distension of the neck and the spine that comes when children crane over books for hours and hours every day. And, you know, then those kids get super-duper trained, and they draw new technologies to them. And those technologies make them even wealthier as adults, and then they train their children any, even more. And in a way, the, the human limit is how much training can a person absorb, and the political limit is how much inequality can a society tolerate. And both in your country and in mine, we're seeing we've hit the limit, and the people are rebelling. Yeah. I mean, where, it, it seems analogous in some ways to you know some sort of version of the so-called hedonic treadmill that, you know, you're like we educate ourselves, we educate ourselves, we train, we train, we train, and then we need to keep doing it. Right. Because we, we're stuck on this treadmill. Right. I mean, the thing that constantly one thinks psychologically is like, okay, these people who are working these super elite jobs, they're super rich, they've got all this money, you know, and they're not enjoying it because yeah. they're and working why don't 100 hours, 120 hours a week. Why don't they just go, yeah, I've got enough money, I'll stop. You know, I can afford to educate my children. I'll stop. Because if this isn't working for anybody, why are people still doing it? Why does nobody just go, you know what, hell with this? I think there, there are two reasons. One question is why don't young people say, I want a different kind of job? And, you know, a job which still leaves me very well paid, but doesn't give me quite as much and doesn't demand as much. And increasingly, the technological forces we've just been discussing mean that that job doesn't exist. So the choice is this grinding super elite workplace or joining the precariat. Why don't people make their money and quit? Of course, a few do. But a lifetime of character formation or deformation means that it's very hard for people to reconstruct themselves at 50. And especially people who've gone through this system their whole life in the elite from the age three they have been pushed and prodded and measured and tested and caused to develop virtues that make them compulsive about work and accomplishment and one doesn't just turn that off one doesn't have the things to replace it with you know i don't know if this is true in britain but in the u.s a striking thing when i talk to law firm partners at the very top firms Those who are now in their 70s all have hobbies. Those who are now in their 50s, no hobbies. Because they've been trained through a system that tells them to think of hobbies as indulgences and punishes hobbies by meaning that you don't put in enough hours. And you can't create a self from scratch in midlife. Buy a leather jacket and run off with a new yeah. mistress, but yes, yeah. that's well. That's uh, that's one. That's about one what people plan. do. Yeah. That's one plan. I don't um, know. <laughs> but you, I mean, obviously, your books focus. You know, you you live and work in the states. You know, this super polarization is something that happens in the states. But as you say in an afterward, Britain isn't that different. Is that right? Is that your argument? I think Britain is one of the rich countries that is most like the U.S. in in the following sense. You're heavily financialized. You have a high concentration of extremely highly paid finance and finance adjacent workers. You know, 
I think I report in the afterwards, something like 70% of the million pound a year or million euro a year bankers in Europe work in the city of London. You have an elaborate private education system, and you have super elite universities as compared to a country like Germany, which has no private education and no elite universities. So in both those ways, you're very much like the U.S., and you also have not nearly as high a concentration of income in the 1% as the U.S. does, but higher than many other rich countries. So in, that, in all those ways, you're similar. And you have some of the political dysfunction you know, sitting here this week that, that the U.S. also has. Yeah. I think it strikes me, you know, you talk about the way in which there's a sort of self-reproducing ideology that kind of contains the seeds of its own downfall. You know, we're reaching a limit. You're, this is class-based analysis, you're talking about sort of structural oppression, false consciousness in the work. I mean, it reads very much like this is a Marxist, straight down the line, Marxist analysis of a, you know, admittedly post-Marxian situation. I mean, would you say, you know, yes, I am a damn Marxist? Well, I mean, look, I, uh, I studied with Jerry Cohen. I don't know if you know Karl Marx's theory of history of defense. So he was an analytic Marxist who defended scientific socialism and historical materialism. And there's a sense in which I believe some of those things. I believe that, that the economic base has a powerful impact on the superstructure of ideas and laws. I'm more concerned with structure than with individual morality. Uh, a peculiar feature of the U.S. American left right now, I think, is that they're looking for villains. And even as they purport to rediscover socialism, they're looking for villains and for injustices. And as you say, the Marxist does not believe really that there are villains in the liberal sense because individual motives don't matter and doesn't even really care about injustice because justice is a bourgeois concept, cares really about class interests and human flourishing of a certain sort. And I, I think those things are correct. You know, the big difference, as you point out, is that this is Marxism for a society that is not simply capitalist but is human capitalist in the sense that it extracts surplus from human skill in a way in which, in the classic Marxist analysis, human skill is less important than human effort. Yeah. Sort of, it's a related point. The remedies you propose, therefore, I mean, I, it seems particularly tricky in the States. So I'm interested in how much, you know, because there is such an ideology of, I mean, you know, before we had all this, there was the idea of the American dream as a kind of compensatory fantasy. There's the absolute baked-in myth of individualism, individual achievement of freedom, yeah. economic freedom and political freedom. The remedies that you'd be forced to apply here, is there some point at which there's going to be a rubber meets the road in that you would require some sort of, you know, unfettered neoliberal capitalism has led us to where we are now? You know, you'd have to say, right, as, as you say, you know, public schools are going to have to, sorry, not public schools, you know, the elite... Private schools. Private schools are going to have to open themselves up, lose their charitable status. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I think the, the real tension here is that the liberal response to this kind of inequality is to double down on equality of opportunity and to say, what we have to do is we have to keep the hierarchy but make the access conditions fairer. And in this country, that's the Tory response, for example, right now. They say, we value equality of opportunity, and we're going to try to give opportunity to everybody. And one lesson of this kind of analysis is that when inequality of outcomes gets big enough, 
equality of opportunity becomes at best a fantasy and at worst an ideology that masks what's going on and that we need to promote more equality of outcomes. Uh, and that, interestingly, is right now the labor position on these questions. I mean, Corbyn has come as close, I think, as any British politician in a long time to saying what we really need is equality of outcomes. And I don't know that I favor the precise ways that labor, at least in some of the things it says, would go about achieving this. But the intuition, I think, is correct, that we need less hierarchy, less eliteness, more nearly equal outcomes, and that it's a fantasy to think we can achieve this while retaining the inequality. How do you think you do achieve it, given how not only entrenched the interests, I mean, you, you have some hair-raising stuff in the book about the extent of, you know, to which money affects and captures the political process in the States. I mean, in order to, to force through even the mildest of your remedies here, you're going up against not only a set of internalised ideologies, but you're going up against a colossal set of vested interests that just would say, you know, in a moment, you know, you're a socialist. This is state intervention is absolutely alien to our traditions. Yeah, it's not just the US. You know, there's this slew of books written in the past five years or so about concentrated wealth, all of which say that societies don't unwind it except by revolution or losing wars. There's the, the Great Leveler, there's Oligarchy, there was a collection of essays by economists printed from a conference at the LSE, and everybody says this. I think there are two kinds of responses. The first is that history is actually quite short. You know, recorded history is 50 generations or 50 lifespans. It's hard to create laws of nature from such a short period. And there are reasons to think that our situation is different. In particular, unlike other kinds of concentrated privilege, which really were just uncomplicatedly great for the elite, this kind of concentrated privilege is not great for the elite. And that means that the elite also has an incentive to moderate it. And not just the conventional incentive that, you know, they're going to take your wealth with green eye shades or with pitchforks, and so prefer the eye shades. But also the new one, that if you give up a little bit of your wealth and privilege, you can capture back your authentic freedom. And part of the idea in the book is that anybody who believes that under conditions of human capitalism, you can be both as rich and as privileged as the elite are today, and authentically free, is kidding themselves. And so the elite has to make a choice. And the choice that's obviously best for the elite is to give up some income and status it can easily afford to lose in exchange for getting back 25 hours a week and the freedom to choose what they do. And are you optimistic that that could happen? No. <laughs> are you? Uh, not, not really. Not hugely. That's not much. hugely. On the other hand, on the other hand, look, if you look at this, this magazine or my university's faculty, it's full of people who've made that choice. Almost everybody who works in serious writing and publishing, whether in a university or in the media or in the press or in book publishing, is somebody who probably had the training and human capital that if they had wanted to go work in the city, they could have done. And they've chosen not to. And they've chosen not to largely because they want to pursue something they care about. And my students, more broadly, when I speak to them, are beginning to see the appeal of that choice in a way in which 15 years ago, to be blunt, they did not. 
they're beginning to see that the thing they confront if they enter law firms where their starting salary now is over 200,000 US dollars a year where if they make partner they will make 3 or 4 million dollars a year that what's going to happen is the gauntlet that they've just run will simply be repeated over and over and over again and they don't want it and they're getting fed up and they don't quite know how to get away from it but there's a palpable sense that things have changed and and that's i think a ground for for hope yeah well the, the fact that students are coming around is a ground for hope and all the rest. i'm wondering though i mean yale law school you know the, the people who are running it soliciting donations from alums people who are you know your colleagues are they kind of like shut that guy up put him in the back you know He's blowing the gaff. And how's the reaction been among your colleagues? I think, people are part of this Well, you know, look, it's a funny thing that these institutions at the moment remain so secure that I think they're not worried. That's the first point. Second of all... Marcuse is repressive tolerance. Yeah, maybe. Exactly. Second of all, there is a genuine commitment to academic freedom in American universities still. And so it would, in a way, just be unthinkable for an academic or even an academic administrator to say anything to somebody who writes a book about what they should say. But the third point, and this is maybe the most pressing, uh, I have this observation in the book that, well, when I published the book, the 10 largest university endowments in the United States totaled $180 billion. I published something maybe for the Washington Post two weeks ago, and their fact checker, I included that fact, said it's not true anymore. Now it's $217 billion. <laughs> okay. And the it's point is, back in half now, exactly, exactly. If you grow out the ten largest university endowments in the United States at the rate they've been growing for the past thirty years, and grow out U.S. household wealth at the rate it's been growing for the past thirty years, sometime around twenty-one fifty or something like that, the ten universities will own all of America. That's not going to happen, and so there's a sense in which enlightened university administrators at these incredibly rich institutions really do have to see that the trend they're on is going to change dramatically. And the real question for them is, does it change in a way that's consistent with their core values? Or does it change in a way that's inconsistent with their core values? And the kinds of opening up to much larger student populations, not just elite universities, but all through the university sector, all through the private school sector, I think is consistent with their core values. They're educators. They're providing training to more people. They believe in social mobility. And so there's a sense in which if you can persuade people that they're coming up against a cliff and that they either need to learn how to fly or crash, that's a pretty good incentive for them to make these changes. That's good. Well, I, at the risk of making a meritocratic judgment, this is a very interesting book. I urge it on our listeners. Daniel Markovitz, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode. <laughs>